Hello, this is Michael Canfield, and thank you for joining us today on The Dog Watch. A dog watch is an evening shift of early or late duty, or the people who undertake it. This dog watch considers the natural world and the things that help us experience it, from dogs to watches and everything in between. Ultimately, it's a place to go wherever curiosity takes us. For a normal shift on the dog watch, we proceed at the measured pace of a ship under sail, looking out at the natural world considering interesting ideas, as if we were having a conversation on an evening dog watch shift. Today, however, we ramp up the speed significantly as we learn how to time things that go very fast. We visit with Judy Stropus, who is a legendary timer and scorer in the auto racing world, and has also been involved as a driver as well. She is author of The Stropus Guide to Auto Racing Timing and Scoring, is a member of the Motorsports Hall of Fame, and is the current Grand Marshal of the Concours d'Elegance in Greenwich, Connecticut. In our conversation, we discuss the ways in which timing and scoring was done before the advent of electronic timers, and how Judy's career developed both in the pit as a timer and on the track as a driver. We discuss a wide range of perspectives, including the actual mechanisms for timing and scoring, the place for fear on the racetrack, a little spoiler, there isn't one, and Judy's friendship with Paul Newman and her participation in what is casually referred to as the Cannonball Run, driving a Cadillac limousine. So buckle up, let's get to our conversation Judy, thanks so much for joining us today on the Dog Watch. Thank you for having me. So, you know, I wanted to start sort of at the beginning. You came to the U.S. when you were quite young and got into racing and and then had a a distinguished career as a scorer and timer and driver. Recently, you were inducted into the Motorsports Hall of Fame in 2021, and you're coming up to the Greenwich Concours d'Elegance as the Grand Marshal. Can you just explain a little bit about how you first got into racing and and scoring and timing? Well, uh, growing up in Long Island, New York, I met a gentleman early on, my first boyfriend, and it was his interest in uh, racing was his interest and cars were his interest. So he had a 120 Jaguar XK120, which he taught me to drive on. And then uh, he had a 57 Chevy, which of course wasn't old yet at that time. And um, he, we joined a Queen sports car club and that's where the women were timing and scoring at local events in Bridgehampton, Lime Rock, Watkins Glen probably. And so I learned how to time and score from them, but it turned out to be something I could do well and easily when they considered it to be more difficult. So it was clearly something that I had, some ability that I had that uh, worked well for me. So I learned how to time and score. And then I was also covering our members of the Queens Sports Car Club, which is a county in Long Island, Queens. So the, the gentlemen in, in the club were obviously the race car drivers, uh, although eventually I became a race car driver, the women were timing and scoring at these events. So I learned how to time and score from them. And then I ended up crashing my Alfa Romeo that I had purchased at that time after I learned how to drive uh, on the on the road, uh, not on the racetrack. And I ended up taking a bus down to Marlboro, Maryland, 
for a four-hour under-two-liter race on Saturday, and the next day was the five-hour SCCA Trans Am race with all the the big names in, in racing. So I went down to help my friend in the under-two-liter race with a lap chart, and I did that. And then that evening, I met all the Ford people from uh, with the Lincoln Mercury Cougar team. So that evening, I met the Ford people from Lincoln Mercury and Bud Moore, the NASCAR team owner who owned the Cougar team in Trans Am that, that year, or a couple of years, I think, 66 and 67. And my friend, Duke Manor, who was writing for Auto Week at the time, picked me up at the uh, bus station with his girlfriend, Charlie, and they ended up being my chauffeur the weekend since I had no car after crashing the Alpha. So when when the team, when the Ford people said, you know, that Trans Am race is five hours the next day, and we really don't know how, you know, how we will get information, the SCCA only provides it every hour, and Duke Manor says, well, Judy does that. She does that, and she does it well. I said, oh, yeah, right, I do do that. And they said, well, we'll, we'll have you do the race tomorrow. We'll pay you $25. So um, I did the five-hour race for them. I scored the race. I knew it was perfect, and there's a picture in my book of me sitting up on the toolbox yeah. and and all the famous drivers, Leroy Yarborough, Cale Yarborough, Ed Leslie, Peter Repson, were driving the Cougars. And I just, uh, Duke and Charlie drove me back home to New York. And the next week, both Bud Moore and Fran Hernandez from Ford called me and said, you need to uh, go out to all the races on the West Coast. So I did that and uh, continued uh, uh working for them and obviously getting paid and getting paid well. And then the following year when they went to the Mustang, they had another group of people doing their timing. So the Javelin team picked me up. They had heard about me. So they called and they said, you need to uh, help us. I said, okay, I can do that. And then in the middle of that year, Roger Penske walked up to me and said, why aren't you working for me? <laughs> so that particular same year where I worked for Javelin and Trans Am, I worked for Penske in Can-Am. And then the following year, I went uh, full-time timing with the Penske team for seven or eight years. And then I went off on, so many teams wanted my services. You know, this is before computers. So, so many teams wanted my services. I was able to work out a program where I could work for many, give them the information and uh, get paid by each. And so I did quite well. Yeah. So a couple of quick things um, before we go on. Um, you mentioned that you crashed your Alfa Romeo, and, and you sort of say it in an offhand way. Um, what does that look like? Like, what happened? Well. <laughs> I mean, because, you know, I can imagine a number of things, right? One is like, you know, you happen to get into a small auto accident. Another one, you're screaming around the roads because you're learning how to drive and you're around race car drivers. What, what happened? I simply fell asleep at the wheel oh, and, and 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 glanced off a tree. Oh, I see. <laughs> okay. Well, again, I, I don't mean to pry, but but partly because later on, and I've heard you talk about other crashes you've been in, other you know cars and race and, cars. Yeah, race cars. And it sounds like you know for me that's such a. Um, you know, a dramatic thing, but I guess in the driving community, it's a little bit different. Um, no, it's normal. Yeah. If you're not crashing once in a while, you're not going fast enough, they say. 
<laughs> I think I'm going to inscribe that on my my desk, maybe as a, as a little motto. Um, another clarifying thing: what about what year was that when you started? You mentioned you sort of started getting um, racing. Uh, I'm sorry, scoring um, jobs, et cetera. Around what time? What year was that? That was in 1967 when okay. I started with the Cougar team. Okay, cool. In your, you know, in your book, um, which I've gotten and really enjoyed reading, um, one of the distinctions you make is between scoring and timing, which I hadn't really appreciated the the importance of that. Could you just briefly explain to listeners so we under, are kind of on the same page? Well, timing uh, is critical during practice and qualifying, so the team knows where they stand against the other teams uh, during those uh, those sessions. So, if when you time every car, and uh, you know, I will time the 20 or 30 cars that are necessary to be timed, but there may be a series where only 15 cars are, are, are up at the top. I, I did have the privilege of working with winning teams, so they were always at the top. So you didn't have to time what we call the back markers all the time because they would never reach the levels of the teams that I was working with. So... 15 to 20 cars, and I could give them the information immediately as soon as every lap uh, on each car happens and I calculate it. I can give them almost before they come around the next time. I can give them the information where they stand. And that was very critical to them because then they knew if they had to, they had to work on the car to make it quicker. What did they have to do? Um, and it gave them, it was very important to the top teams. And in, in scoring during the race and the races, the teams, some teams used to joke and call me rain tires because that meant when you really needed me, you really needed me. <laughs> so uh, uh, short races, like half hour races, I'm, it's not that critical to have timing and scoring because you can tell where where everybody stands by watching the race. But as soon as there are pit stops and other incidents or red flags or caution flags and people come into the pits, it gets all jumbled up and you need to scramble, unscramble that and give the, the results to your team as, as, they, as they stand at that time. So I was valuable in the longer races, two hour, three hour, four hour, six hour, 12 hour, 24 hour races was where I was valuable. I would keep track of every car on the racetrack and give my teams their positions uh, at any time uh, during, the, during the race so they knew, again, what their strategy should be and what they needed to do to catch someone or to, to stay ahead. Uh, so it was, it was very important uh, to, as part of the strategy. Now, we did have timing during the races, the longer races, I would have my assistants timing our team cars so that we had a lap count as well. So that was a double check on the lap count that I had on my scoring chart. So we still timed, but it wasn't critical. It, during practice and qualifying, you had to be very accurate so that, I mean, by within tenths of a second early on, I mean, now it's hundreds of a second, thousands of a second. My watch is my watch back then would not be able to to record a thousand of a second. We were lucky if we got a tenth of a second. So Yeah, so just so I understand as someone who's not done racing before, you will in practice and qualifying you're you're doing timing so that you're sort of figuring out 
how well that car that is in your team is performing relative to other cars, right? But not worrying about the laps because it's not a race, right? You're not trying to win. In an actual race, is your job as the timer and scorer more important as someone who's counting laps or are you also, is it also important that you're really giving them the times as well? The importance is letting them know what their position is during the race. So it's counting laps on every car that's out there and, and letting, and, and, and your positions, you know, there's a system how you use the lap chart. Right. And record it so you can tell them oh, you're in third place. And if, if the timer, the person timing might be able to determine whether you're s- several seconds apart, but that's what the team people in the pits can do. Once they know what the positions are, they themselves can time the difference between your car and the next car. Right. I don't need to do that because right. they can do that. Yeah. And you're just making sure that they know what position, like what place they're in. Right. Right. Cool. One of the things I found in your book that was nice to hear about was kind of your ascension to being more important in the place of the teams. You talked about in the early days, you had this oil barrel polka when you set up for timing, and then that eventually led to you having a a custom stand. So what was the oil barrel polka? What what was that? Was that in my book? It was. Yes, I'm (laughs) sorry. that's funny. Do you, rem- do you remember that? or No, I don't remember writing that, but that's interesting. But I do remember, yes, we'd, uh, what we'd have to do every race we'd show up at, I'd have to go out and find, and uh, you can usually do it, find some sort of platform to put your timing stand up because you had to be above the heads of the people in the pits. Yeah. You had to be able to see the racetrack. So I would find uh, barrels, usually barrels, oil barrels. They're always hanging around racetracks. And and I'd have somebody help me collect them, and we put four up, and then I'd go find some wood, yeah, uh, and put put sometimes I think later on I did get the teams to carry that wood, and uh, so that we could put it up on the barrels, and then I have my table and chair, very primitive at that time because yeah, I mean, and and you did, you couldn't have a lot of equipment to carry on the race truck trailers because they had didn't have that much room, so you had to. You couldn't carry the barrels on the truck, so you had to carry all the other pieces. And yeah, and then eventually, uh, I, it, well, we'd have an umbrella for the rain, and then eventually I developed a, a, a cover, a plexiglass cover, uh, for the table that could fold up, take little room on the truck. And, and when I started to work for many, many teams, I had to negotiate with one of the teams to carry some of this stuff. And then, uh, uh, and then they would have to set it up. And a lot of times they all had so much work to do that setting up the timing stand was the last thing on their minds, but they've always got it up in time. It's funny, I have dreams to this day about getting a race starting and I don't have my timing stand set up. <laughs> For real? Oh. For real. And it has to do, it, it clearly has to deal with some kind of stress going on in my life. Yeah. But, <laughs> But and then eventually, um, uh, I, I can't remember if the team started to build their own timing stand, or some company had come to me and said, "I can build you a timing stand, can, and we can sell them if you promote it. We'll put your name on it." 
And so we had a sticker that said approved by Judy Stropus that went on these timing stands. And we had some fun with that because I would stick on those stickers on to people. <laughs> but <laughs> um, oh. so eventually, yes, we evolved into having uh, really, and, and they could fold up so that they didn't take as much room, take up as much room on the truck as, as, as you would think. They would make sure there was room for them. So somebody, one team always would have to carry that equipment. Yeah, one of the things I really appreciated about that story of kind of going from you searching for oil barrels and trash cans to try to put this thing together to having a more professional um, endorsement of them creating this for you is that it became clear to them that your system and how you timed was extremely important. And we'll we'll get to that more, but I think that was um, a nice symbol of how important your information and your skill was to these teams um, in trying to understand what was going on on the racetrack. So I I first got in touch with you, as you know, kind of at least partly because I'm interested in, in watches and, and how people timed, you know, racing events, right? And had this question about what are called tachymeter dials on watches, et cetera. And I was surprised when you sort of said, well, that's not what we do. We use these stopwatches. And so you describe in your book, which is called The Stropus Guide to Auto Race Timing and Scoring, which is a great read, although it's hard, a little hard to find. You might have to go to the library, to the <laughs> stacks, as I did. Um, oh, but, good. But um, I'm, I wonder if you could just kind of explain how you could record the progress of so many cars in a race with just one stopwatch. Like you developed the system and, you know, it's in the book. It's it's relatively complicated, but, you know, people, listeners coming to this would be like, how in the world could someone with one watch, one stopwatch, sit up on this oil barrel pile and make sense of these 24 cars going by at breakneck speed? So can, can you kind of describe how, how you came up with that? Well, it, it, the, the basic system was um, what the SCCA used, Sports Car Club of America, that it's and so I took their system, which requires many people to do uh, the job because they have to have backups and all. And I, I just so I condensed it down to being able to do it for a team or many teams uh, in in one place in one position. So they use the same system uh, um, where you have your chronograph, and originally you had to stop. You had to click on the time your car came by, and then you had to click it again to get the hand to keep continue to catch up to the to the to the um, constantly moving hand. So once you start the watch, it is on current time. I mean, obviously, if you put it on current time, you can have it on current time, but current time of the session or the the, the race. So you start the watch. And then you have the button that you click on. And this is why that watch, as I mentioned uh, earlier, uh, that is on 60 minutes, you'll see it click, 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 tick, tick, ticking back. That is the watch that I used. Originally, they had the name Hoyer on it, but they eventually realized that if, if they weren't paying for it, that there was no reason to give them free publicity. So they took the name Hoyer off. Clearly, if you're right-handed, it, make, it, you, it makes it easier because this the button was right where your thumb would be on your left hand. And you would, you would hit that time when your car hit the line that you have determined in advance, that line's in front of you. And it has to be a, 
a permanent line, not somebody's jacket or a person standing there that can move. You have to use that same line. And as soon as the nose of that car hits it, you hit that button, you read the time, and you put it in a column starting from the bottom, and then you you have to click it to catch it up. And then uh next car comes by, and you click it again, you write that time in that car's column starting from the bottom up. And the next time these cars come by, it's your second lap, and you write that time in. And then you subtract the two, and that's how you get the lap time. And that's why you could do, you could time as many cars as you are capable of doing and how you have your sheets set up. And I designed my own sheets, even on blue paper for the sunlight, because the white paper was very blinding. So you had to use blue paper. And um, every race you would have your, the same cars in the same column. So your mind sends you to that correct column. But you have to make sure you're in the right column. You have to identify that you have the right car, you have the right column, and it's just one car after another, write down their time, subtract, circle the fastest lap, give your team the information. It's multitasking. So one of, a couple of clarifying questions about that. So the Hoyer stopwatch that you're referring to has a couple different functions on it. One, it, it has a, you know, it's like a watch, right? So it has the time. That, right. And it has the this uh, running seconds for the time. And then it has a split-second recorder right. stopwatch on it as well. During a 24-hour race, I would have two or three set up and all started at the same time in case one breaks down. But you have to remember to wind them like any watch. Uh, yeah, so, but you only use one watch to... Split, yes. But it's not, you know, again, I think a lot of people would think that you would start the race at zero, right? But you started at noon because that's that's the important part, the race length, not the time of day. But you can set it for the time of day. They they're regular watches, you can set it. You can set it for two fifteen if but there was no reason to. You you wanted to set it to the length of the race. You'd zero it out at noon. Absolutely. Yep. Right. One other question, thinking about trying to do this and having all these cars come by, I was really confused because one, just keeping track of it in the first place sounds baffling to me. Uh, and you mentioned in your book, like very few people have a, an ability to do it. I'm definitely not one of those people. <laughs> um, like, you know, a few people in the world really were good at this, you being one of them, which is incredible. When a number of cars go by in quick succession, I hadn't understood that until I read the book, kind of how you did that sort of estimating within the second or whatever. Yeah. Did you use the split second um, function at that point, and and how did you do that? If I used it, I used it maybe for the first car, and then maybe the last car if there was enough time. Otherwise, I, again, you have to identify the cars. You have to know who they are. You sort of have to have a photographic memory, which I kind of do, or did. And you estimate. You've 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 sort of figured out by this time how far apart they are in speed at particular track you're on, and it's. It's a tenth or two tenths or, you know, you may not be exact, but back then we weren't. Again, today you're exact as a thousandth of a second, but we weren't back then. We were lucky to be within a tenth. But a tenth is the most. Uh, I, I had an issue with officials one time because they're doing it by hand, just as I am, but they're, they give maybe two cars to one person or something like that. And... And so I come back and I argue. I said, you know, you're off uh, a half a second. And they said, well, that's just, you know, normal uh, timing, you know, to be off. That's, that's, that's the error factor. And I go, no, 
Do you know how many millions of dollars these teams spend to be a half a second quicker? It, it's it's not. It's not acceptable. You have to be more precise. So a couple of other things. One thing to imagine for a listener is that for an hour, this sounds like it's a pretty big challenge. But you're talking about three, six, 12, 24-hour races where you would be there the whole time doing this timing. How did How did you do that? Number one, I was young. <laughs> True. <laughs> Even when I w- was young, I couldn't have done it. So I guess, you know, that's that's a personal um, skill that you have. <laughs> so you have to be young. You have to be totally committed to what you're, do- you're doing. You have to realize that you're working for the top teams in the world, and you'd better be right or you're out of a job. You, you have to be totally focused. You have to be, you know, tough on, your, on the people who are helping you sometimes. And you, you want them to be as focused as you are. And you have to um, prepare yourself physically. I mean, I was so young that I, 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 if I had known so many things that I know now about preparing, I, I would have done even better. But I did okay. Uh, I didn't drink anything. And I mean, there's no way you could do that at an older age. But when you're young, you, you know, your body does come back. So you don't drink anything uh, for a day or so, and and you don't drink anything during during the race. Um, and I mean, obviously, my eyes were better then. You have to be determined and focused, and and you just you just you just you know you can't make a mistake in twenty four hour races. You have backups when the when the officials do come out with an hourly report because we have that watch that's going on race time. We mark the hour. Uh, on our lap chart by marking the line down uh, alongside the last cars that came by uh, in that hour. And then you could take the hourly report and go back to that hour and check it. Again, in between trying to still keep track of the cars. The one good thing about 24-hour races with professional uh, teams and not showroom stock, that's a whole other ball of wax, um, is that these cars do break down. You may start with 50, 60 cars, but by the end of the race, you may have 30 left, you know, that are still running. So it makes your life easier. But I'll tell you my showroom stock story. Showroom stocks are cars that clearly, you know, are, are out of the showroom, supposedly, but they do tweak them and they do, do they put, they obviously put roll bars in, and but they, they're not supposed to have any other technical um, changes, but, but we all do. Everybody does. So, um, they don't break down. So I did a couple of 24 hour showroom stock races and I said, Oh my God, this is so hard. I did it, but I didn't want to do it anymore. So when the teams asked me, next time the teams asked me, I said, Okay, here goes. If you want me to do the 24 hour showroom stock race, it's going to cost you $25,000. If, <laughs> If you finish the race, it's going to be $50,000. If you want me to argue with the officials uh, about a result at the end, it's going to be $100,000. I said it with tongue-in-cheek, but that was my way of of getting out of working the 24-hour Sherman stock races. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, so you're kind of talking about the teams and the value. I've heard you tell a story about kind of how that value is important about your information versus the the official scoring information. 
So there's one during the race. Can you explain how the information that you're um, collecting is important to the team? Like, why is it so important that they have quick access to the information that you have? And then secondly, I know at the end of the race, sometimes there's a discrepancy. And I heard you tell a story about that. So how, how would you explain those aspects of, of your work? Well, the team needs to know exactly where they are at all times so they know what strategy to use uh, about making a pit stop early. Like you'll see uh, in today's races, they have these caution flags. We didn't really, I guess we had caution flags, but they weren't like they are today where you have to decide, is that when you make the pit stop or how much time you're going to lose by coming in? Uh, you have to use that strategy. So you have to know exactly where you are and where you're going to come out. Uh, when you come out of the pits and how, and, and I can tell you how pit stops the other teams have made because I keep track of that. Um, so they, I can tell you, yes, he's, he's made a pit stop back lap 30. So that's, that's very important. Today you have instant information from the officials because it's all with transponders and it's on the computer, but they didn't have that back then. So the only information you received was from your timer. That's me. And the officials would give you an hourly report that was, that's probably an hour old already. Um, so there was no way that the, the, I mean, even if they put something up on the scoreboard, that top three cars is all you would see. There just wasn't any usable information from the officials because they didn't have computerized timing. So that was very critical to the teams. Yeah. So let's turn a little bit to your own career as a driver. So when did that transition take place or how did you sort of transition? And I mean, you drove in your descriptions uh, of your kind of career as a driver. You drove a range of cars, including VWs, the Porsche 914, 924, Maserati by Turbo, the Freighter Nash, and even a Cadillac limousine, which we'll get to later. That um, wasn't in the race. No. Let's let's not let's get clear that up. The Cadillac limousine was not in a race. Okay, so we'll get. To, I don't want to get into any controversy here. But which cars did you really enjoy, and and kind of how did you get into the racing thing? Well, again, we you know being at the races all the time, being at all the professional races, and locally going to some of the races locally. I didn't have that much time, but. Obviously, I had friends who were racing here in the Northeast. And a friend of mine, Tony Koshlin, had two Oscar Maseratis. They were vintage cars in, in the VSCCA, Vintage Sports Car Club of America. And he said, you know, you should drive one of them. I said, okay. Um, and so I, 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 you know, I don't remember how the instruction came about, but there must have been some instruction with the VSCCA. I wasn't required to have a professional drive, driving racing license yet, but I drove the Oscar Maseratis, and, and we had a good time with with um, the two cars, and I think we helped start the vintage racing craze because as a publicist, because I was always in the PR business even when I was timing and racing, um, I was able to get stories on us in Car and Driver, Road and Track, and every magazine, so we kind of helped generate the interest and then um, it's funny because, in there, again, it's like meeting the right people. I had a dinner at Lime Rock Park in Connecticut uh, with uh, sponsors and other people there, at, probably at a pro race, and sitting there at a table. And, again, another friend of mine is the one who said to the Dunlop tire people, 
Well, you should sponsor a woman in, in, in racing, and Judy right here sitting across from you is a race car driver, and she would be uh, an ideal candidate for your marketing plan. And so they, they said, okay, send us a proposal. I said, okay. So I sent him a proposal. Meanwhile, I didn't have a racing license. So I had to, so they accepted the proposal. So now I had to go run out and get a racing license. So I took advantage of all my racing friends at that time. Al Holbert let me race a Scirocco that he had. Uh, a Ferrari dealer lent me, loaned me a, uh, a, a trailer to carry the Scirocco on from Pennsylvania up to the Northeast. I, I was doing PR work for Chevrolet, so I had my so-called company car, which was a Suburban, and we used that to tow it. And I, I, I did have a helmet and driving suit uh, because I was racing the Asuka and, and those items, but I didn't have Nomex underwear. So I think Skip Barber or Bob Sharp loaned me their Nomex underwear, um, so I borrowed everything to go through SCCA driving school to get my official racing license. And then once I got the license, then, uh, then, uh, we, we went on to run, uh, the Volkswagen in SCCA and then the Volkswagen Cup series with Dunlop sponsorship. Yeah. It seems like that was a, a car that you really liked to drive, right? The VW. I love the idea. The front wheel drive. Yeah. It, it was so good. There's photos of me. There, we we would race on three wheels basically because once always one wheel was up, one rear wheel was always up when you're going into the corners. Wow. Uh, so it was a, it was a lot of fun, and it was so much fun because you drafted and you. It was so much fun, and I, it's such a good group of people. They even a whole bunch of them even help even came up here and help from Buffalo, which is where many of them were from. And help me move from a condo to the house that I'm in now years ago, back in the hmm. 70s, 80s, I don't know, 80s, I think. And, um, no, they were so much fun to race with, and we did so well, so well. Yeah, and again, I'm sort of looking over the profile of your racing, like you really did, a, you know, had a lot of success as a racer as well, as a race, as a driver as well, right? Yes, I mean, I, 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 I was running a business, timing and also public relating, and so uh, I didn't, I couldn't race a full series. I couldn't race a full Volkswagen Cup series, but I raced whenever I could. Yeah. And then I ran SCCA Nationals with the Monza once. Done once Chevrolet. Uh, there was an ad that that Dunlop put out, but it put the Volkswagen front forward. Uh, and here I am representing Chevrolet. So they, and it was a great ad. You have to, the ad said for Dunlop tires, Dunlop makes tires for ladies who drive on Sundays, drive at Watkins Glen, at Laguna Seca, you know, all these racetracks. <laughs> it was a very well done ad. And uh, I, I don't have the wording exactly right, but it, it was a very, a great ad. But because the Volkswagen was front forward, uh, I had to switch to a Chevrolet. So I went to a Monza and we raced SCCA Nationals. I went to the runoffs, which is the Olympics of of amateur racing um, one time. And, and uh, I, I crashed that in a, in, in a race at, uh, in Ohio. So how did you deal with the dangers involved? Like how, I mean, I, I would imagine everybody has to make peace with it in their own way, but how did you make peace with that? What dangers? 
Um, if you think it's dangerous to be out there, don't be out there. <laughs> you have to have the mindset that you're going out to do your best, to use your talents, your skills, enjoy what you're doing, be competitive, race with other people. You are not thinking about the dangers. No race car driver who's worth his or her salt is going to be thinking about the dangers. That's a good answer, and I think that fully answers my question. Um, <laughs> which, you know, again, someone who's not done it, especially, or might not have that mindset, maybe it just doesn't doesn't belong out there, or um, hasn't experienced it in that way. Yeah, you see it from the outside. You look at it, and you see it as dangerous. But we don't. We inside the cars don't see it that way. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you about a couple of quick things. One that came up before, this is the, you know, somewhat of a pop culture thing, but the, the cannonball run in, I think it was 72. Um, you had, you know, a Cadillac limousine. This, I think it was called the right bra racing team, as I remember reading about. Yeah. And then it eventually got rolled. What, what, what was that about? Like you said, no, that wasn't a race earlier. Like, yeah. I, uh, so can, what's your story of that? Like, how did that come about and, and what was it? Because I don't know a lot about it. It's, it was an outlaw race where no one knew about it. It was meant to be outlaw. And uh, Brock Yates, um, who was uh, a writer, author, uh, script writer even, he was writing scripts for different movies. He came up with the idea. It was, it was the time when the 55 mile an hour speed limit was put in place. And he, he was against it on highways, obviously. So he created this outlaw race called the Cannonball Baker C2 Shining Sea Memorial Trophy Dash and just got all his friends to do come up with these crazy vehicles. I mean, an ambulance with a, with a patient in the back, <laughs> uh, a, 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 a motorhome with, with catered by a major chef, as, we, as they drove across country, Ferrari that uh, Dan Gurney and, and Brock Gates went, were in, uh, so many different vehicles. One, another van with a huge tank of gas in it so they never had to stop for fuel. Think about that, how dangerous oh. that is. That's dangerous. <laughs> and so, I mean, and then, oh, uh, a Mercedes full of priests uh, all dressed in, in their frocks. And then the three females. I just thought it would be crazy to have three women. Uh, I didn't know what vehicle. One of the drivers, Donna Mae Mims, was a race car driver, drove Sprites. And her theme was always think pink. And she was always dressed in pink. She had this white hair. She was quite a personality. And she was, uh, she was, she, I think she was a national champion. And... um so I invited Donna May. I said, that would be fun. And then the third driver was the wife of one of the uh, gentlemen who were driving in another vehicle. So he thought it would be fun to have her come along and be there at the end with him. And the only problem is she just had a child, and she she was not a race car driver. Uh, and I, I agreed with that. I said, you know, we don't have to be race car drivers to be in these vehicles, although we ended up going over 100 miles an hour on the highway. Um, illegally, of course. So, and we were dressed in pink. I went out and bought pink bell bottoms, the style of the times, white belts, pink body suits. And at the last minute, the right bra company came in as a sponsor. But Donna May, I mean, God bless her. She was almost 50 years old and she was just perky as, as 
anybody would be. And she's not wearing a bra. And I said, Donna Mae, you know, um, we're being sponsored by the bra company. Oh, I didn't, it, you know, came last minute. She didn't, she didn't know that. I didn't expect her to show up without a bra. And she, the funny thing is that in our PR business, you know, usually you carry product if you're selling STP, you usually have a few cans of STP to hand out. So she assumed that, oh, maybe the PR guy had some bras in his pocket that he could <laughs> hand out. And of course he did not. So, uh, she ended up, uh, running the entire event without. Two. So we ended up, uh, crashing in Texas. We took the southern route because there was talk of snow in the central part of the country. So we took the southern route. Nobody else was on that route. So we had no, no association with anybody else. And, and so Peggy, uh, the non-race car driver fell asleep at the wheel and I tapped her, but she panicked and, and we rolled a Cadillac limousine in, in, in Texas. Wow. So, and, oh but goodness. we were all okay. Uh, Donna May always wore her helmet and when she was sleeping in the back. And uh, a gentleman who was working for me at the time made sure the car was safe. We had the seatbelts uh, all pulled out of their, <laughs> of their moorings. It turns out that, again, I borrowed everything from my friends. Bobby Rinsler, a, a Can-Am team owner, got us the car. Turned out that he rented it, so he ended up owning it at the end of the event. He called up the rental car company and said, you know, we love this car so much, I'm going to buy it from you. Is that okay? <laughs> And uh, they sold him the car. And Mark Donahue got us Goodyear tires. Uh, Roy Woods, a Trans Am team owner and driver, um, got uh, his one of his friends to give us a bunch of money. So we, we had a lot of support. Wow. Wow. That's quite a story, I have to say. <laughs> um, and good to do while you're younger. Um, Again, yes. So another question, you were spent a lot of time in Connecticut, and I understand you live there now. You mentioned that you were a, a sort of colleague in a way of Paul Newman. You raced against him, et cetera. And how well did you know him or what, what um, interactions did you have with Paul Newman? I didn't race against him. When, when he was racing the Nissan for Bob Sharp and I was racing that Chevy Monza, we would be at uh, SCCA national races together. And we'd often park together. Uh, and he lived... Uh, well, a few miles from here, but when I lived in Weston, he lived less than a mile away in Westport, just over the border. I was, we were right on the border of Westport and Weston, Connecticut. Um, and so, and sometimes he would, uh, have a private plane to fly us to the races, uh, it would fly him to the races, and then I would latch on if, 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 if it worked out. And, uh, and sometimes we would even be on commercial flights together. So it was, it, it was it was a, a comfortable friendship um, because he was a member of the Road Racing Drivers Club, which is a invitation only a members club, uh, and I'm a member, and I also do the administrative and PR work for it. We got to see each other a lot. I mean, I'll tell you the funny story about the SCCA Nationals in Atlanta, which is the Olympics of amateur racing. He was racing there, and I was racing there, and we were we had a, a Road Racing Drivers Club banquet, and that year, they decided not to allow uh, wine or beer or anything at the banquet. So we we ended up, uh, we had to, this huge RRDC trophy that we gave out to uh, the best driver of, of the weekend that we decided on. And we would put some wine and stuff in there, and we'd, we'd smuggle it in, and then we'd put the wine in our coffee cups or whatever. <laughs> so now we've run out of wine. So Paul was sitting there. He said, I said, you know, I have some more in the car. He says, I'll go get it. I said, okay. So he went 
And he got the bottle of wine. Now, mind you, here he is at the door coming back into the banquet. And these women are the guards. And he decides he's going to put this bottle of wine down the front of his pants. And the women are looking at him. They don't know quite what to say, but they let him in. Just think about it. What are they going to say? I'm sorry, sir. Is that a bottle of wine down your pants? Or are you just happy to see us? But... But it, it was, you know, we've had fun times. Yeah. There are a lot of fun times. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I have just two two sort of more questions. The first one you've touched on a few times here and also in your book, you mentioned that the role of timers and scorers often went to wives and girlfriends and um, women tend to be better at it. And you ended that sort of saying like that, it, you know, even though they women weren't often allowed in the pits, et cetera, you, you know, women should get the credit for what they did. And I'm curious kind of now looking back, what was it like to be a woman in racing at that time and, and going forward as far as the good aspects and the, and the ones that were more difficult? I'd, I, I, I always like to say, I didn't know I was a woman. I didn't hmm. see myself as a, as anybody different than, than my colleagues. Um, we had such a great relationship with drivers as the respect everyone was respected for their jobs what they did um and we had such a good time we used to just just party crazy uh, yeah. at times but um i had no sense that i was doing anything different than anybody else until i decided to become a race car driver then i got some resentment because they thought i got through all the licensing procedures, not exactly the same as everyone else would have, because I knew I was famous already at that time, and I knew people. But I went through, I, I, I did everything exactly right, the way it should be done, and nobody's fast as soon as they start racing, but they improve and they get better. Absolutely. Yeah, I think you're right, and there's a lot of wisdom in that. Judy, I, I just wanted to thank you so much for spending time with us today and sharing about your life and about racing and all the things that you've done. It's been a true pleasure for us and I know uh, for our listeners as well. So thanks again for joining us today on The Dog Watch. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to Judy for joining us today on The Dog Watch and sharing so much about her life in racing with us. Our music credit today is Whiskey on the Mississippi by Kevin McLeod, courtesy of Creative Commons. Until our next shift, this is Michael Canfield thanking you for joining us on The Dog Watch.